Welcome to the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, where every week we bring you an interview from someone who loves these horses, from historians and breeders to insiders and professionals, all brought to you by those who love the Arabian horse. Thanks for listening. This is Paul Costa with the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, and I'm thrilled today to have John Lambert with us. John, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you, Paul. I I appreciate the honor uh, of being here today. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And John, for those that don't know, is the executive director of the W.K. Kellogg Arabian Horse Center at Cal Poly Pomona. And in the Arabian horse world, that's quite a significant place where you are working. And I know you've been there four years now. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But John, we first start out with the podcast, having the guests share a little bit about where they first found the Arabian horse. Where did you first find the Arabian? Yeah, Paul, you know, everyone has their they're a unique and awesome story and we're all we're all different every one of us uh so you know i like to say and everyone that's listening to this today can understand that horses are in your blood and i realized that when i was a kid growing up south of detroit about 30 minutes and we didn't have horses where i lived and um every opportunity i had to to watch them on tv to go to a local parade, or if there were mounted police somewhere back in the day, there were a lot more. This was in the 70s. I would just touch them and I wouldn't wash my hands and I would go home and I would smell that smell of a horse on me. And and it was just always there. My dad or my parents, uh, for that matter, always thought that uh, this was a phase of my life I was going through because I always wanted a horse. At that time, I didn't know it was an Arabian horse. But when I turned 15, my dad and I sat down, had a conversation. He said, John, this is a phase of life you're going through. Horses are for girls. This is not for boys. And I just kept at it. Well, eventually he realized it wasn't going to go away. And my father bought me an Appaloosa when I was around 15, 16 years old. We didn't know anything. The horse came with a saddle, came with a bit, $500, and uh, we boarded it at a local facility that my my dad bartered and traded for. And I realized real quick, this horse didn't know anything, nor did I. And I almost got hurt a few times. And so my dad sold that horse. And his friend was a, uh, a Shriner. Actually, my father was a Shriner as well. But his friend that was a Shriner um, rode in the parades and they rode Arabian horses. And this was in Detroit. So from there, we purchased our first Arabian horse, bred by Dr. Rooker. J.R. Demetrius was his name, beautiful gray Arabian gelding. Um, I got that horse. We didn't have the funds for me to have a coach or a trainer. So I just explored and learned on my own. And I showed 4-H. We did Western and Hunter and Showmanship and Saddle Seat. And then I showed at the State Fair and and uh, the local uh, level horse shows, which would have three, 400 horses. And so then my my dream started to grow. And I knew that I wanted this to be a big part of my life. So I'm now into high school. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at the Arabian horse times and the Arabian horse world. And I made a trip by myself down to the uh, Arabian Buckeye show in Columbus, Ohio. And this yeah. was... 1988 1989 it was a huge horse show i had followed this farm called paragon arabians 
And it, it's kind of funny because I, I would remember that they had a fax number on the bottom of their ads. And I just thought, wow, they must be good. Well, I saw Paragon Arabians at the Buckeye and Jim Lowe was there. And I thought, well, if he came all the way from California, he must be good. So I walked up to Jim Lowe, not knowing anyone. And I asked him for a job uh, when I graduate high school. We all know Jim Lowe. He hired me on the spot. I graduated high school, packed up my car by myself. The day after graduation, I drove from Detroit, Michigan, all the way to San Inez, California. And I like to say the rest is history from there. Uh, I did go to work for Jim. I was uh, very quickly woken up to how hard the work was, uh, but I'm, I'm you know, lucky to have worked for someone like Jim, who is such a hard worker. He, he taught me what that was in the beginning. Um, I then realized that maybe this was kind of a crazy life, trying to be a horse trainer, that you work hard hours and you don't make very much money. So I made the decision to move back to Michigan and pursue my degree to go to vet school. I did go to Michigan State University at that time, got my four-year degree, chose not to go to vet school, in turn went to work for Sean and Carmel Rooker. And I, I learned a whole lot more from Sean and Carmel. And from there, I opened my own public-private training stable, Lambert Arabians, and operated that uh, business for close to 20 years. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and, and what age would you have been when you opened that, roughly? Oh, I was probably 28 years old gotcha. when, I, when I started. So I went from 16 years old, not knowing anything about a horse, to 28 years old, and I opened my own business. Well, I know that's um, a whole podcast in itself, and I want to jump from there to four years ago when you had the opportunity to become the executive director at Kellogg. What an amazing experience. And we could probably have multiple podcasts about Cal Poly and Mr. Kellogg. Yeah. And I just would like for you to start sharing a little bit his story and kind of how you moved to this wonderful position and what it's been like for the first four years and your kind of key initiatives and a little history. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. I love to, to tell the story because quite honestly, uh, so I have more than four years experience. I'm, I'm four years as the executive director, but prior to that, I took the role as the horse trainer here at Cal Poly Pomona at the Horse Center in 2015. So I'm on about eight years now, I think it is, nine years, something like that. Um, but that's when I really learned about the Horse Center. But I love to share this story. So let's just jump into that because as I, I didn't know enough about the history when I took the first job here, right. um, I realized that a lot of other folks don't either. So Mr. Kellogg, we all know Mr. Kellogg, the cereal, or Kellogg cereal cornflake. He started the corporation. Mr. Kellogg was born in the middle 1850s. And you can imagine, and, and this was in Michigan, you can imagine in the middle 1850s, times were very, very different. So I want everyone to, to go back in time a little bit and, and close their eyes and, and see what that would look like. They didn't have cars, et cetera, and, and life was a little bit different. Well, he grew up on the family farm when he was around 10 years old. His father had gotten he and his siblings a pony, and this pony's name was Spot. Spot 
was adored by Mr. Kellogg and the siblings. In fact, they would do all sorts of crazy antics with this pony, as most of us probably have. I can only picture all, all of the kids riding bareback at the same time and sure. pulling on its tail and getting drugged by a sled in the winter and you name it. I'm sure they were doing it. Well, down the road, the next door neighbor would always get upset with Mr. Kellogg. And one day he came over and he said, you guys cannot treat this pony like this. You have no idea. This pony is royalty. And that horse is an Arabian horse. And he always remembered that conversation. And it's wow. documented that this conversation took place. Yep. Well, a little bit of time goes by. And again, we're in the 19 or 1850s. And, and he comes home from school. Um, and Spot is gone. We don't really know exactly what happened to Spot. But I can imagine that Spot probably was costing more than he was making. And and uh, Mr. Kellogg's father probably had to sell him. Uh, well, times to were tough, and maybe it was time for Spot to go. Yeah, so Spot leaves, and at that point, Mr. Kellogg told himself that one day, I'm going to own Arabian horses again. Well, a lot goes on from the middle 1850s up until 1925, when he starts to buy his first horses. And what is that? He he works for his, Mr. Kellogg never graduates high school. However, his brother becomes a, a world-renowned doctor. Huh. Mr. Kellogg goes to work for his brother and who had built a big sanitarium, a huge, huge hospital. It was on the cutting edge of, of a different way of thinking of medicine. We won't go into that. Just trust that it was different. Um, Mr. Kellogg ran the books for his brother, but he also um, was involved in creating the Kellogg cornflake. And that was through this hospital. His brother was feeding uh, the patients the very first granola. Yeah. It was Mr. Kellogg himself who was feeding it to the patients and it was bland and dry. And he started to add milk and his brother would get upset and he would try to add sugar and his brother would get more upset. All the while he was documenting different recipes. Well, they had parted their ways when Mr. Kellogg was about 45, 46 years old. And he, and he had all of the documents of these uh different recipes. And that's when he stumbled on the Kellogg cornflake. Now, again, that's a whole nother podcast in itself. So I want to get to how we got into the Arabian horse. Uh, within about 15 years of developing the Kellogg Cereal Corporation in the early 1900s, yep. Mr. Kellogg is notified that he is one of the 100 most wealthy men in the United States. Now, he had no idea. He was too busy working. He was too busy doing things. Um, it was at that moment that he was notified that he told himself, I'm going to relive my boyhood dream and go back to spot. And he, at that moment, decided he was going to buy a big piece of land and have these horses out in the West in an area that most resembled 
um, the Arabian Peninsula, but he really didn't know anything about Arabian horses. He had never owned one other than this pony. Wow. He, uh, he very quickly gets on a train with his son. They travel from Battle Creek, Michigan, down here to the Southern California, LA area. He had had probably the first or one of the first uh, it, it it looked like a camper. It was more of a limousine, but it had uh, a toilet and cooking and, and a place to sleep. And he traveled up and down the coast with his son to try to find a large plot of land where he could build a, a ranch to raise Arabian horses. While they're on this journey, they landed on two pieces of property. One was here in Pomona, where we are today, and the other one was north of here, about 100 miles. They couldn't decide, so Mr. Kellogg pulled out a coin out of his pocket, and this is a true story. He flips the coin, and if the coin are to land on heads, it is Pomona. If it lands on tails, it's the other location uh, up near Santa Barbara. Oh, wow. Well, the coin lands on heads, and Pomona it is. As Mr. Kellogg always moves very quickly and efficiently and thoughtfully, he secures a deal for the original 377 acres of land in 1925 in Pomona, California. Now things move very, very quick. And this is the, the fun part of the story. Well, it's all fun, but this is a real fun part of the story of how quickly he moved, uh, much like the Kellogg Corporation. He buys the land. And he immediately starts to learn about local Arabian horses. He goes to a farm in Diamond Bar and he strikes a deal and he buys a few of their horses at this small farm in Diamond Bar. But he also travels out to Indio or Palm Springs area, which is very much the desert. And there was a big oasis farm breeding Arabian horses out there. And it was Mr. Clark. Mr. Clark had some of the best Arabian horses in the country. He visits there, he meaning Mr. Kellogg, and he strikes another deal to purchase uh, a large number of Mr. Clark's horses. And while he is there, he gets turned on to this gentleman by the name of Carl Schmidt. Carl Schmidt, at that time in 1925 was a world-renowned Arabian expert and a horse trainer of Arabian horses. He was considered to be the best. Mr. Kellogg spoke with Mr. Clark and said, you know, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here, but this is what I want to do and I need some help. And so Mr. Clark offered up for Mr. Kellogg to hire Carl Schmidt and he does. Wow. And that was a, a very, very smart strategic move uh, that he does. So uh, quickly, Carl Schmidt comes on board. They, they buy some more horses up on the East Coast. They design in the blueprints of the original stables, which are still on our campus today, right in the very center of campus, as well as a very large mansion for Mr. Kellogg to be his summer home and built a home for his uh, son as well on the property. It is only early 1926, so a lot has happened in about six months' time. He's bought horses. He's building a stables. 
with Spanish architecture, a large home, and a, and a couple other homes. Uh, Mr. Smith talks about uh, some world travels that he had planned with, with Mr. Clark, and he would now like to do those on behalf of Mr. Kellogg. Uh, one of those stops would be into Egypt and into the Arabian Peninsula to secure some horses, but he also uh, learned about Lady Wentworth, meaning he, Mr. Kellogg, learned about Lady Wentworth from sure. Carl Schmidt. Mr. Kellogg uh, sends Carl Schmidt on this trip to purchase some more horses, and they end up at, or he ends up, Carl, at Lady Wentworth's. And while he's there, he he evaluates all of Lady Wentworth's horses, and and we all know that uh, the Crabbit horses can date back to some of the originals from the Bedouins. And she, at that time, had the had probably the best or one of the best Arabian breeding programs in all of the world. And and the elite and various countries were always trying to get their hands on Lady Wentworth's horses. Mr. Kellogg tries to do the same, and Lady Wentworth tells him, no, you, you can't buy any of my horses. Again, this is through telecommunications. It's 1926. So right. the trainer is in Europe, and Mr. Kellogg's back at Battle Creek running the Kellogg Corporation. Telecommunications are, no, we're not going to sell you any horses. Well, Mr. Qua Kellogg... Um, is obviously a very persuasive man and very thoughtful and strategic. He he ends up persuading Lady Wentworth, but not only persuading her, he told her what he wanted to do, and that was to breed the best Arabian horses and bring them to the United States and promote them to the people of America. Well, she liked what he had to say at that point after saying no, and she decided to sell him some of her best mares. And a lot of those mares were in fall. She also sold three of her stallions, Racine being one of those. Everyone, well, I shouldn't say everyone. Um, uh, a lot of folks know who Racine is, who is the sure. son, of, son of Skwarnik. Skwarnik could undoubtedly be the most important Arabian horse uh, for you know, hundreds of years at least. You're right. As is Racine. Well, Racine and the mares come over on a boat. They land here in 1926. The stables have been built. It has only been a year now since he took that trip from Michigan. He's bought the land. He's established some of the best horses in the world, built a facility, has an expert to guide him. Now... By the end of 1926, and I think partly, uh, Paul, that this was strategic in the flip of the coin because he did want to promote the horse. I think he did want to be close to Hollywood. Now, there's nowhere does it say this. This is my own opinion, uh, but I have a feeling that this is what his thoughts were. To promote the Arabian horse, what better place to do that than through the movies? In the, this time in 1925-26, it was still silent films. Right. And those that could, could go see films, they would. Well, he went to Hollywood, and by the end of 1926, he started putting on massive public exhibitions at his center. 
at his ranch here in Pomona, which is now Cal Poly Pomona. There are documents that show over 2,000 people coming to these public exhibitions in 1926. That's amazing. So, yeah, so I like to tell people, Paul, that that um, Mr. Kellogg actually created the wheel <laughs> as far as the work that we're all still trying to figure out how to do. He, right. actually, he actually did it. He was one of the first. He wasn't the first, but he was one of the first uh, to really, really... Uh, you know, publicize and promote the Arabian horse to the public on a global scale. So his horses uh, then end up in the movies. Um, Rudolph Valentino, uh, a, a, a great silent film, Son of the Sheik, uh, had Mr. Kellogg's horses in it. And from there, I like to say a lot of it was history uh, after that point. But we're he's only a year into it now. Um, so where do we go from there? He is now in the latter part of his years. Mr. Kellogg is in his later 60s. Right. And as a visionary with long-term perspectives, and Paul, you and I were talking about this offline, about how a lot of great farms come and go. And, uh, the, you know, uh, they don't necessarily pass down to the future generations of their of their kids. Right. They may not have interest. Well, Mr. Kellogg realized this in in 1932. He had owned the farm for seven years or the ranch and the horses. But he realized that that the ranch needed to be affiliated or tied to an institution for it to have a long life. And that's exactly what he did. He he does give the ranch and all of the land to the state of California. Okay. In, in our, that, for those uh, historians that are more qualified than me, if I'm off a year or two, please don't come <laughs> come get me. But, uh, you know, the early 1930s, we'll leave it at that. Sure. Um, he gives the land to the state of California to build a university. And, and uh, quickly, he, he's still around and he's overseeing things. He doesn't like what the state of California was doing, uh, and he actually was going to take it back. Well, World War II pops up at that time, and he felt like his Arabian horses and the ranch could play a war in, or a role in the war, and it does. He uh, he he works with with the U.S. government, and the U.S. government takes over this land and these horses. Uh, and it becomes an army remount for World War II. There was a lot of training of soldiers here uh, to be horsemen. They were breeding horses here. They were incorporating Mr. Kellogg's breeding program into the army's breeding program uh, and vice versa. Well, when the war ended, the U.S. government no longer had a need uh, for the center, and Mr. Kellogg was still around. We're now in the late 1940s. And uh, the Kellogg Foundation in Battle Creek, Creek had been formed, and they write a deed for the land, and the land is given back to the state of California again to, to build a university. Wow. And Mr. Kellogg's words were, education offers the greatest opportunity for really improving one generation over the next. That's good. And children were very special to him. 
underprivileged children were very special to him and his Arabian horses were very special to him. Uh, so there was a, a deed created. Um, and then, you know, a whole bunch more things go on. And here we are in 2023. I could spend five hours talking about all the history, but I know we don't have that sort of time. So um, what are we doing here today in 2023? We are the oldest continuous Arabian breeding program in the United States. Almost 100 years old now wow. when Mr. Kellogg started. The original stables are still on the property. They're used as, uh, they're very well maintained, but used as student class or student offices for the yep. various clubs on campus. There was a new facility built in 1974, and that's where the horse center is now. We have 55 acres, 40 acres of what I would like to say are likely some of the best horse pastures in all of Southern California. We have 70 purebred Arabian horses. Um, I've been leading the uh, breeding program since 2015, but there has been countless great people that have, uh, you know, walked in my footsteps before me. So I'm just carrying on what, what they left me. Um, I am proud to say that we've been in the top 10 breeders of saddle seat horses for the eight years I've been here. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were ranked number three. I think last year we were ranked number five. Um, boy, Paul, I, I well, I think all that's amazing. Like you asked a question. You know, the, the the breeding program that's gone on there and the successes y'all have, I don't know that it's very apparent to everybody. And yeah. secondly, I've been in the business and, you know, since I was a child for 50 years, and I've really never heard, you know, all these stories about Mr. Kellogg. So I love hearing that. But give yeah. us a little stats on your breeding program and what y'all been doing, because there's some amazing numbers. And plus the fact I know y'all been doing some auctions and things that have been very successful. And I think people would like to hear about that. Yeah, super. So I'm not a, I don't pat myself on the back uh, very much. I Maybe I should do that more. So I don't really keep up on our actual stats that close. Uh, I, I see them from time to time, but I don't keep records of them well enough. But I do know that three years ago, as I mentioned, we were number three. Um, I think last year we were number five. Every year we're in the top five, top 10. And that's with the greats. I mean, the greats of the greats and our numbers are not real big. Um, in 2015, when I took the job as the horse trainer and there is an advisory committee yep. that Mr. Kellogg also set up. I was told that we no longer could, could sell horses private treaty. And I thought, wow, only by auction. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, <laughs> so 2015, I entered into our first auction. We sold 18 or 19 horses in that first auction. There were 18 oh. or 19 entered. Every single horse sold. And it was at that moment that I realized we can make this work and that we needed to beat a stigma. And this is another podcast down the road someday. We needed to beat a stigma that we could sell or that anybody could sell good horses through public auction and get fair market value. Well, the first year we didn't get necessarily fair market value, but it was about building a brand. And that's what I set out to do. 
So we had our, our second auction and our third auction leading up to our fifth auction, which was last year. We at that time had entered 99 horses now in five auctions. All 99 horses have sold through the auction. We don't That's sell any horses. Yeah, no private treaty sales. While the first year our average was quite low, you know, I don't, I don't have the stat, but I think it was under $2,000 a horse was our average price. Yep. Our auction last year, we put eight horses on the auction block. I'm proud to say I, I bred every one of them. They were all under the age of four. Eight horses totaled close to $250,000 for those eight. Uh, we did sell one... Well, there were quite a few outstanding horses, so I don't want to say any of them were better than the other. Uh, but the high seller was $100,000, and and that was a historical marker for the university. We sure. had never sold a horse of that value, and it was only three years old. And and likely, you know, up there as far as a statistic of selling horses through auction for an Arabian horse. Um well John, you know, I know we've talked a little bit about all kinds of topics that we've got with Cal Poly and the university and Kellogg and the history and the breeding and, you know, breeding alone, I'm sure you have some helpful tips and suggestions that we could do on another podcast. I think that y'all yeah. have really focused on the English type of horse. Is that correct? So partially correct, Paul, but a great topic. Um Primarily the English horse, and that has been the large focus, and it still is today, and it will continue to be. The English horse, as we all know, uh, has a has a well. The Arabian horse has tremendous heart, so I don't mean any disrespect to any other disciplines. They have more energy, uh, so it's not not necessarily more heart, but they have a lot more energy. They're not always the most student friendly horses for our students here at Cal Poly. Most of our students have never been around a horse and the, the English horse is a little more sensitive. Sure. Um, so starting in 2015, after I realized that, oh man, there's you know some safety things going on here uh, with students, I, I realized we need to kind of take Michigan State's lead a little bit and, and also breed a little more of a... Um, a, a, a horse that is that is more designed for students, if you will, one that is a little bit more forgiving or maybe not as sensitive. So right. the bulk of our herd is saddle seat horses. And then the other 20% are horses that are being designed or bred specifically for student programs um, so that they can continue to learn and go out into the industry. Uh, but they do get opportunities on the English horses as well. So I don't know if that answered your question, Paul. No, that's good. It kind of narrows the scope a little bit. Tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on now. I know you've got some things that may not be ready for prime time yet, but share a little bit about the university and what y'all are doing and the kind of educational programs that are available for people I know can come to visit the university, the the facility, Kellogg. You know, what yeah. happens, you know, share a little bit about all that. Yeah, so um, this year, this school year, uh, 2022, 2023 school semester, 
we had 900 or approximately 900 students come through our doors at the horse center and use our horses for our hands-on learning opportunities. Now, we do not have an equine major, so we don't have a uh, equitation class. We don't have cult starting. The students don't get to learn how to train horses. They don't even get to learn how to be uh, grooms, if you will. But so these are classes for like our vet tech school. Right. Um, we we did, and I'm proud to say, uh, start a equine minor in 2019 when I came on as the director. That was a big initiative. So we do have an equine minor on campus. Okay. Those students are also using our horses for for hands-on learning opportunities. So what are they learning? Just very basic horse skills, Paul. Um, um, but they're not learning the the training component. Uh, we have a very well attended class called Full Watch, where any class from any major can take. Uh, or enroll in full watch class and and they get to be a part of a mare foaling all the way to uh, its birth or, or sorry from breeding to its birth and yep. full watch class um, Cindy Reich has been helping teach that class for several years now what else uh geez oh Pete's we're open to the visitors Monday to Friday eight to four we give tours by the tens of thousands. Interesting. That's amazing. Tens of thousands. We're open to self-guided tours as well as large group tours. I give I, on a given week, three or four every week of, wow. of a large group tour. The Sunday shows, which Mr. Kellogg talked about, or that I talked about, Mr. Kellogg started in 1926. Yep. They have been going on since then. They have paused twice during World War II. And then obviously at the pandemic and we returned to Sunday shows last May. That's fantastic. The, the, that the Sunday that, shows. Go ahead. Sorry, Paul. Well, the Sunday shows are just an open opportunity for people to come and visit and watch a little horse show. That is where. So I like to say it's not a show as much as it is an exhibition of the versatility of the Arabian horse. Okay. And, and it displays, um, well, all the great things that the Arabian horse has to offer, it's typically those that have never been around horses, but I can't tell you the countless number of people in our industry that got their first exposure. Chris Colberth, first exposure to the Arabian horse was at one of our Sunday shows, and there's many, many, many more like him. So many people have come through this program and, and been a part of it in one way or another. So the tradition continues uh, the Sunday shows the students from our horsemanship club, which has roughly 75 students on that club. Yep. They get lessons here. They get to volunteer here. Then they get lessons for their volunteer hours. And they are the ones that ride and present the horses in the Sunday shows. We will, on average, have 300 people from the general public sit in our stands and watch our horses at one of our Sunday shows. That's it's, fantastic. And they're just well-known in the community. It's something people know to come do. Yeah, they're very well-known in the community. And, and we'll have visitors that come from all over the world. Um, and it's really cool. To, we open the doors up afterwards, and I get to talk with the public. And, and you know, so-and-so in her, or he or she in their late 80s are there with their great-grandkids or their right. grandkids. And, and with their kids and 
it gets passed on through generations or they bring visitors that are here from England, uh, visiting them in LA and they bring them to the Sunday show. So we get to expose so many people. And part of my job is to do exactly what, what you had mentioned earlier is you've been in the business 50 years and you didn't really know much about the WK Kellogg Arabian horse. Well, neither did I, Paul, when I took the job. Um, now it's my life's passion. It is my life's work. And, and it truly is an honor for me to lead this program into the next hundred years. Well, John, I think it's amazing what you're doing already. And certainly there's a long history there, starting with Mr. Kellogg, but then Norm Dunn was there and Bill Hughes and others have led those programs. You know, really what a great honor for you and a great outreach program that's already been built and is already having a major impact in our community. Yeah, absolutely. Like like I said, it is an honor. And there has been many people before me. I have some very big shoes to fill. That is for sure. But yeah, yeah. Well, John, so we're, we're going to have you on our podcast. I think we're going to start a little mini series of little educational updates from Cal Poly at some point. Um, and so we'll talk more. If anyone has any questions, though, in the meantime, what is your best email address to reach to reach you? Yeah, so my best email is J.E. Lambert, L-A-M-B-E-R-T, at C-P-P dot E-D-U. Okay. J.E. Lambert at C-P-P dot E-D-U. Well, that's fantastic. And John, I just really want to give you some accolades for one, taking the time to have this conversation with us today. But, you know, everything that you're doing now to carry on this wonderful history and legacy of the Raven Breed there at Cal Poly and the Kellogg Center, that's just an amazing opportunity for us and the breed to expound upon your efforts. Yeah, thank you, Paul. We, you know, we all have to do our part. And Paul, you you deserve all of those accolades as well. You're promoting the breed every day. So so this is a great pleasure for me to share the Arabian Horse Center on your platform. We're doing different work, but we're doing the same work. And and so it really is a pleasure. And thank you for inviting me to speak. That's good. Today. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here. And I look forward to having you back again. Thank you again. Thank you, Paul. This is Austin, director of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure you click subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Comments, questions, guest ideas? Feel free to send me an email at austin at weloveArabianHorses.com or just use the contact button on our website at weloveArabianHorses.com.